Each of our worship services has its own excellence, and in this space I'm looking forward to exploring some of the great hymns and new hymns better, and you should, you should be proud of this one. Ruth Duck is our uh, professor of liturgy and worship at Garrett Seminary, and it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful hymn. A reading in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 8, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. He writes, Owe no one anything except love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is. Now is the moment for you to awake. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first became believers. The night is gone. The day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day. Not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word of the Lord. In our Old Testament passage, we have reached the moment for which our, our journey in, throughout the summer, getting to know our, our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and the people of Israel who went down into Egypt to seek refuge there during famine. Another Pharaoh came into the power, and that great, the great company of Israel became feared, and they were oppressed as slaves. And so God heard their cry, selected Moses to lead them to freedom. Pharaoh, not listening, sent nine plagues upon Pharaoh. And today, in tonight's passage, the, the great night is the tenth. And to dump tomorrow in the text is the day of Israel's liberation. This is the great story. Jesus himself, on the night before he gave his life, up for us told this story in Passover and passed on to us a version of that story to tell every time we worship in word and sacrament. If you're listening closely in this story, you've, there's something important to be noted, that you cannot be a great nation by allowing oppression and injustice to exist within your borders. Nations are judged in how they treat the least. And God is always on the side of freedom and human dignity and the oppressed. And the lesson in scripture is that tyrannies fall, God prevails. Remember. So we are on the night before that great victory. 
And one would expect a leader like, like Moses to give a, a great speech about victory, about the past, about the nature of freedom, about maybe perhaps something more somber about the journey ahead of them. But this is not what Moses does. Instead, on this penultimate night, Moses tells the people of Israel to remember your children, to teach them what this means. Moses, in God's spirit, gives the people of Israel a ritual in which to remember this night. And he says a little later, when it is, when in the promised land you observe this ceremony, and when your children ask what it means, say, it is the Passover of the Lord, who passed over the houses of Israel and delivered us with a great outstretched arm. And Jesus, on the night in which he gave himself up for us, celebrated this story, took part in this ritual of salvation. And so instead of giving a great speech on the night before the the victory, Moses sets in place a school of education. From thenceforth, Judaism and Christianity after it will be defined as educators. The lesson is that to gain their freedom, Israelites were told that they had to become a nation of education and memory. And that memory was held in worship, in rituals around scripture, prayer, the family, hearth. Human beings, as it turns out, are ritual creatures. In our spiritual traditions especially, we pass on memory through rituals. We have traditions in our families, among our friends. Most of all, as Judeo-Christians, we have rituals in worship, traditions. And to be honest, you can probably name in your life or over the course of it some tradition that was not helpful that over the long run kept you trapped in the past. Sometimes traditions need to be relearned, reformed. I call thee of those rituals of nostalgia. And I'll get to that in a minute. Today we're reflecting on the rituals of salvation. And on the night of God's passing, Moses taught the people of Israel that freedom is not something to be won in a battle. Freedom is taught in the human heart. The people of Israel from henceforth will become a people of education. Even down to today around the Passover table, this story is remembered and taught. You must teach them what it means to be aliens in a foreign land. Let me sink that in for a moment. For in order to be a just people, you must remember that you too were aliens in the land of Egypt. Do not become Pharaoh. You must teach them how a beloved ruler was replaced by a tyrant. 
You must remember the long journey to freedom. You must taste the bitterness of suffering. They must know what oppression feels like in order that they may be a people of blessing. So the tradition begun in today's text continues in the Jewish Passover Seder unto today. It teaches the meaning and memory of freedom, what it's like to be oppressed, and sets before the family a vision of justice. It is no wonder that when Jesus observed the Passover, then Pharaoh, Herod, brought into Jerusalem on that week before Christ died a great contingent of Roman soldiers to keep the peace through power. A modern introduction to the Seder begins like this. Tonight's meal is not just a retelling of an ancient story. Rather, we are asked to actually experience the bitterness of oppression and the sweetness of freedom so we may, so we may better understand the hope and courage of all people, of all generations in their quest to be free powerful thing, teaching. I wonder if we were to take this Jewish practice seriously, as seriously as Jesus did on the night before we gave his life, who passed on to us a ritual of salvation. If we were to take this tradition seriously, what would it mean? Several brief observations. No surprise, there's three of them. First, it would mean that the bedrock of church, our work together, is primarily rooted in the education of children in the rituals of salvation. Also, in welcoming newcomers into the story, and reminding ourselves. But our work in the Judeo-Christian tradition is primarily work with children. Newcomers to the faith. Our yearly re-entry ourselves into the rituals of salvation. And we do this in our tradition through worship. Sunday school is a very recent invention. It is perhaps incorrect. The place for children has now and has always been in worship. It is there that we shape one another in the ritual of salvation. You may disagree with me, but you're going to lose. I love the voices of children in worship, interrupting my sermon, adding a, cant, adding a uh, descant to an anthem. I don't mind, because that's the sound of hope. That's the sound of joy. It's what we are taught. Jews remember this at the Seder. Second, 
Well, not, no, not second. This is one point B. <laughs> it means that everything else we do, every, it means that everything else we do, including our occasional grumping and grumbling, are secondary to the primary task of rehearsing the ritual of salvation in worship. Everything is secondary to this. It's how we are taught to pass on the faith. It's how we renew it in our hearts. Everything else we do is either an extension of that or in support of this. To be free, Israel teaches us, to be free is to remember whose we are. And we are taught that in the rituals of Christian worship. Second, to be free is to be free from hate. This is clearly taught in Scripture and in, in the rituals of salvation. And in our time, it is with some intention this fall that I have taken this journey re reading these great texts so we can find in them a narrative for our children that places their voice, our voice, your voice, as a Christian voice out in the world that doesn't demand the world to become like us, but instead sends us out to bless the world. That's a much better place to be. <laughs> Ask Joel Osteen that. <laughs> yeah. It's time to reread our faith, and it's already there. It's in the book. We are called now to rediscover a way to teach our children a way to be Christian in a diverse world and to be a blessing upon it and not a curse. There's a lovely, and sometimes we must very intentionally enter into texts and reread them. There's a Jewish custom observed in some seders of removing ten drops of wine from cups from the Passover cups. Why? And this is part of the ritual, the questions of why and an answer. Why? Because we glory in our liberation to be sure, the, question, the answer goes. But we do not gloat over our fallen foes. When the waters of the Sea of Reeds engulf the Egyptians, there's a, a a, story, a legend, it is said that the angels of heaven then began to sing God's praise, but God silenced them, saying, My children are perishing. Cease your songs. For tonight we celebrate with less than a full heart and less than a full cup. It's beautiful way to teach the faith without hatred, for surely we cannot open our hands to the grace of God while we're holding on to our enemy. So rituals of salvation must teach, must teach that to be free, we have to let go of hate. Third, finally I suggest that if we are serious 
about ritual and as serious about it as Jesus was. Our rituals of salvation are not about the past, but about the present and the future. Now, we'll get back to the contrast here. We do have lots of traditions in churches. The question is, which are traditions of nostalgia and which are connected to the rituals the deep faith? An example. Uh, I'm the son of a country preacher in a country church. And I grew up for all my life going every, every fall about this time to something called the Sunday school picnic. We'd all get, it was pretty exciting. We all packed picnic baskets to church and got to watch that preparation go. And then we, after church, we, of course, we're all restless during church. But then after church, we go to the Confederate Park, <laughs> spread out our table. Now, what mystified me a little bit about this tradition growing up and calling it the Sunday school picnic I was a Sunday school of one. You get that problem? Why was this called the Sunday school picnic? What it did for me was depressed me a little bit. <laughs> I was not a part of that great church. It left me out. I realized later that already when I was a child, the dynamics that would change in the culture had already begun to take place. And so my church I grew up in, in fact, there's never a church I've been in or led or been a part of that didn't think of some great moment in its past as the glory days. Sunday school picnic left me out of the story. That's a ritual of nostalgia. I wonder about rituals of nostalgia. As, as a shepherd of uh, now of these of the mainline churches, I begin to attune to the, when I'm hearing a ritual of nostalgia versus something that's helpful. What might that be? I'll tell you what it is. It's every time I hear someone celebrate or moan how many people are not here. You've never done that. That day is over, friends. Over. The culture has changed. That day will never return. And also, it's not really helpful. It's not helpful to me. New people to the community. They can't be a part of that church. It is a part of us. But the journey is a continuous journey in a much deeper water. The real focus for us should be connecting people to the great story of salvation. And I tell you, one other clue I have to it, for me, and this takes a lot of strength for me, is that I think to myself, is what I'm doing just as relevant as if two or three are gathered or there are a hundred? 
because the same story, my work is just as valid, just as important when the two or three are gathered versus the 150. And if, when that is done, the 150 may come, they may not, but we've done our work. So next time, oh, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining at all. So next time I'm greeted with a story about how things used to be and how we were going to do, that, do it that way again and how many people we used to be and you see my eyes glaze over, know that I am gone. <laughs> I'm at home thinking about some cookies I'd like to have. I've just, well, I've been there. Because what you're doing is you're leaving me out of the story and I don't want to hear it. Got it? People that come to us, they want to be part of the story. They want to be joined to that great story. Hope. This is what people need is hope. Whether it's two or three or a hundred. And where that hope is, my story. It's about a wandering Aramean who's small in number. His family went to Egypt because of a great famine. Another leader arose in Egypt and they became oppressed. And God brought them out with a mighty arm and wondrous works. And later, a poor carpenter on the night before he was betrayed, taught me how to live. Rituals of salvation. So let us be a people focused on education. Education in worship as we tell that great story and in our time we tell it in a particular way. A way that shapes human hearts and a blessing for all people. And let us be a people of hope, not nostalgic. And if we do this, to God alone will be the glory, now and forever. Amen.